The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Perfecting Precision in Modern NSCLC Practice. Are you optimally integrating biomarker-driven therapy? Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash RYC 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hi, everyone. My name is Ibi Dagogo-Jack. I'm a thoracic oncologist at Mass General Hospital. And I'm Stephen Liu, a medical oncologist from Georgetown University. And today we'll talk about perfecting precision in modern non-small cell lung cancer practice. Are you optimally integrating biomarker-driven therapy? So to start us off, we want to talk a little bit about the gaps in biomarker testing. Certainly we know that non-small cell lung cancer is a heterogeneous disease. There are many different subtypes each with its own biology, and increasingly each with its own treatment. So when we look at biomarker testing, which is an important first step, Ibi, how are we doing? Yeah, so I think that we have a ways to go. And so first, let's look at some of the data that we have available. So biomarker testing, as we talked about, is incredibly important for management of non-small cell lung cancer. We have an ever-increasing number of relevant biomarkers and approved drugs. Some of these are listed here in the table. And as you can see, the pie for non-small cell lung cancer molecular alteration keeps getting filled in. So I think it's an exciting time for us. And so it's incredibly important for us to look for these uh, mutations, fusions, and uh, other key molecular alterations. But to get to your question as far as how, how we're doing, we have a couple of studies presented here. These are mainly community-based studies. The first one is from the MyLung Consortium, and the other two are based on flat iron health data. And I think that the punchline from all of these is that even in these uh, settings, only 50% or fewer of patients were getting next-generation sequencing. And so that's even in, uh, kind of within a U.S. oncology health network where we assume that most of the patients have insurance. They have highly dedicated providers who are well-versed on next-generation sequencing. And so we're not doing good enough, if I had to answer that question. I think one of the third study to highlight is that there are also disparities within biomarker testing according to race. And so we've seen some recent data presented that even uh, compared to uh, Caucasian patients, African-American patients may actually have even lower rates of molecular testing. And this is just, again, highlighting the key point that for the first study was looking at all five biomarkers tested. This study was dating back to 2018. And so we all know that there have been multiple more, uh, multiple additional biomarkers since then. But even for these five biomarkers, they had fewer than 50% of patients who were having all five biomarkers consistently tested. And so the reason, it may seem straightforward, right, that you just test for it and you treat for it, right? But there's a lot of steps along the way for biomarker testing, and there's, that creates a, a lot of opportunities, a lot of holes, right? A lot of opportunities for patients to miss out on getting a precision medicine approach. I just wanted to highlight this study that just shows multiple potential areas where there can be a disconnect in biomarker testing, including whether or not the t- biopsy was ordered, whether or not the test tissue was adequate, whether or not the results were interpreted uh, in correctly, and whether or not that therapy was available or the provider was aware of the therapies that could be given in a, uh, for a given uh, molecular alteration. And so with that, um, let me turn it back to you, Stephen, to answer, like, why is biomarker testing important? What are the proper strategies for testing for these key molecular alterations? Well, it is important. And, you know, we're well past the point where biomarker testing is some elective ivory tower exercise. It is essential. And if we don't have biomarker testing for someone with advanced lung cancer, we cannot know the proper treatment. We're just guessing. 
and we want to guess as little as possible. We really want to know. Biomarkers help us optimize care. They provide some insight into the biology. Certain biomarkers tell us that cancers are a little more likely to involve the brain, for example. That some cancers are a little more likely to present with venous thromboembolic events. We know more about the biology when we know the markers. We know the prognosis. But really, the essential piece is we know how to properly treat these cancers. When we see an actionable driver, a gene fusion, a mutation, it guides us towards targeted therapy, which works very quickly, which has very high response rates, which can be very durable, which are very safe. In addition, it drives us away from immunotherapy. And immunotherapy in a lot of these driver-positive cancers is largely ineffective. Um, and not only is getting the treatment right, getting the sequence is right too. We really need to give these in the right order. And if we give immunotherapy and it's the wrong choice and we move to targeted therapy, now we've given it in the wrong order and it's suddenly much more toxic. So we need biomarker data. We need it early. Now, biomarker data uh, is this big black box. There's a lot of detail involved in that, the type of testing matters, whether it's tissue versus liquid, whether it's single gene versus multiplex NGS, and whether it's DNA versus RNA. And we know that for testing to occur, there are a lot of people that need to be involved. Treating lung cancer really does require a team, and we need to not just send someone for a biopsy, we need a lot of communication about the types of things to biopsy. We want to minimize false negatives and really maximize the utility of these tests. If in the past we might biopsy a bone lesion to confirm someone has a metastatic lesion in the bone, we know that biopsying bone, that decalcification process, sometimes corrupts or damages that DNA. And so molecular testing may not be as good in a bone biopsy. So we need to be involved from the beginning. Where do we biopsy? How much tissue do we need? There needs to be open levels of communication across the board from all members of the team. And it really is critical to identify these actional biomarkers. And I think a good example is looking at gene fusions. Gene fusions, historically very actionable alterations. We have very impressive results with a lot of our fusion-positive lung cancers matched to kinase inhibitors. There are different ways we can detect fusions. Um, using fish historically has been uh, approved by the FDA, but uh, identifying certain proteins using enhanced chemistry, even some RT-PCR panels. But really, next-generation sequencing, multiplex testing, has revolutionized testing. It's given us the ability to test for all of these markers at once with much greater sensitivity and specificity. How we test for the fusions really does matter. And this is an era where the medical oncologist needs to be in active discussion with the pathologist and with people acquiring the tissue. Tissue stewardship is very important. There are advantages and disadvantages to lots of different approaches. Immunohistochemistry, for example, is a very fast test. Sometimes it you know, can come back within a day. It can be relatively inexpensive, depending on the antibodies you use. And in some areas of the world and the country where resources are a bit more limited, it may be a lot more appropriate to start with IHC, whereas next-generation sequencing allows us to test for multiple things at once, really making best use of the tissue that we have. But even within NGS, there are subtleties. There are different types of next-gen sequencing. Some are DNA-based and some are RNA-based, and those are different. Um, there are some cases where RNA-based next-gen sequencing will complement DNA. And so it doesn't replace DNA-based NGS, but it adds to it. And there are cases where we have very large introns. If we think back to our biochemistry days and molecular biology, these intronic regions are not coding, um, but if you're doing DNA testing, 
you're really needing to, to cover that entire intron. Some of these introns are massive. If you're looking at RNA, those introns are spliced out, and so it's much easier to find them. So fusions where you have large introns in the genes, like NTRAC, um, particularly NTRAC3, like NRG1, those are going to be very hard to find with DNA-based NGS. You may really only find them with RNA-based NGS. There are some repetitive introns where DNA-based NGS really might fall off the nucleic acid and, and will lose it, whereas uh, RNA-based splicing those out will help find it. And that's really important for ROS1, especially if you're looking for a non-CD74 ROS1. And complex genomic events can be difficult with DNA-based NGS. Medexon 14 skip mutations, that's an important one, where RNA will help you find more. DNA-based NGS will help you find mutations, and it's going to find most fusions, but there are some that will be missed if you do only DNA, and RNA will help identify those. The question we have to ask ourselves is how many targets are we al allowing ourselves to miss? This is an important study that was done at a Memorial Sloan Kettering for patients with advanced lung cancer, adenocarcinoma, that had DNA-based NGS with no actionable targets. All they did was RNA sequencing, and what they found was in 15%, they found an actionable mutation, an actionable alteration, a fusion. Now, some of these were rare ones like NTRAC, like NRG1, but some were ones we're, we're really familiar with that we don't want to miss, like ALK and RET and ROS1, where we have FDA-approved drugs. And so the type of testing, DNA versus RNA, is a little more we need to know. And in some cases, just as important as the type of testing is the tissue um, or the source material for that testing. And we have some, some different options there, right, ABI? We do. And so, you know, it's been a couple of years since plasma emerged on the scene, but I think that it's, it's created an incredible opportunity. So as you said, it's not just alterations, it's also the source material. So there are different advantages of each. So liquid biopsy we know is faster, the turnaround time is often faster than tissue. And we've had multiple studies now really demonstrating that if you pick up something in plasma, that it's, it's also likely to be present in the tissue. So it has, uh, it's a very good, uh, it, I would, it's very accurate is the word I would use. But the sensitivity is not perfect for uh, liquid biopsy. So sometimes you might miss things depending on the tumor shed in the plasma. And so there are different kind of questions about how we should be integrating liquid biopsies with some proponents saying, why don't we start with tissue and then use liquid biopsy? Whereas some people are very much in favor of doing them at the same time. And so this is just one um, proposed uh, algorithm for using uh, ctDNA testing or tumor testing and liquid biopsy testing. I would say that it, it may differ at your institution, it may dif differ at your practice, but one of, I think that this is a great illustration of one particular way for approaching liquid biopsy. So if it really uh, drills down to whether or not tissue, tumor tissue is available for genotyping. If it's unavailable, plasma, CT, plasma DNA is, I think, a great source. Uh, for genotyping. If tissue is available, I think that it really is sometimes up to your institutional practice whether or not to do concurrent tumor tissue and plasma ctDNA analysis or to just do t tumor tissue uh, DNA or tumor tissue genotyping. And so I know at my institution we tend to uh, rely on tissue because we have an in-house assay. Stephen, is that the case in your practice or do you tend to prioritize liquid biopsy? Well, we actually will send both right away. And so if I'm seeing a new patient we'll do tissue and we'll do um, liquid at the same time. Liquid generally will come back faster. Now we don't have an in-house assay. We send our tissue out to a commercial assay and that takes a few weeks. And so while that's being sent, we'll send liquid. And the advantage there is it comes back faster. And if I get that liquid result and if it shows me a RET fusion, we can start a RET TKI right away. I believe it. But to your point, if it doesn't show anything, we wait. 
We wait for the tissue. And I always say that, you know, I, I view these as complementary. I do wish they were complementary, uh, meaning that they were free. And I think that if you removed, uh, uh, if you remove the, the cost, I think there's no reason not to do uh, liquid biopsy. It really is just a matter of, of resources. And if there are ways around that, I really do think liquid can add a lot to the story. No, I agree. And, and, and it's less invasive too. And so I think it's a, a more patient-friendly approach. And so in addition to uh, looking at, you know, the source material, so tissue versus plasma, another thing that comes up is, you know, are we doing the right tests to find the relevant alteration? And so one example is EGFR. For a while, we've mainly had therapies that were addressing the most common EGFR mutations, so exon 19 deletions, L858R substitutions, but more recently, we've, ha we've had uh, approval of therapies targeting a different type of EGFR mutation, exon 19 insertion, sorry, exon 20 insertions. And if it really matters what tests you're using if you're trying to find some of these alterations. So many of the PCR-based tests that we use to find common EGFR mutations do not encompass or cover the exon 20 insertions. And so one example or one, one uh, study that illustrates this is, this is looking at um, real, world, real world data using the Genie database as well as the Foundation Insights database. And I was struck by this data. It shows that if you compare NGS to PCR for detecting EGFR exon 20 insertions, PCR missed nearly 50% in one study and over 50% of exon 20 insertions in another study. And so this really proves that if you're using the wrong test, you're not gonna find these highly relevant alterations. And so why are they relevant? Like what are therapeutic uh, implications of finding an EGFR exon 20 insertion? Well, we, we have drugs approved for these now. And your point is, is so, so important. You know, as medical oncologists in the past, our profession we would focus on therapeutics, on managing toxicities, and now really our job is to have an understanding, a very strong understanding of molecular biology. We need to know these details, not just you know, the results of the test, but the, the, the metrics of the test, the type of test that was done, when it was done, on what tissue or blood it was done. Uh, and we need to be responsible for how accurate these tests are because if we miss these, we will make mistakes. We will choose the wrong treatments. For EGFR on 20 insertions, if we miss them and we don't find a driver, those patients will receive immunotherapy in some form, and it's largely inactive in this subset of patients. Whereas if we find them, we have drugs that are approved. Two drugs now FDA approved for EGFR exon 20 insertion are amivantamab and mobisertinib. Now, amivantamab is an intravenous molecule. It is a, a bispecific antibody, one arm targeting EGFR, the other targeting MET, and that is now FDA approved. For EGFR exon 20 non-small cell lung cancer, the other drug approved shortly afterwards is mobisertinib. That is an oral tyrosine kinase inhibitor that targets EGFR and is active against EGFR exon 20. Um, this irreversible agent, given at a dose of 160 milligrams daily, showed a response rate just under 30%. If we look at this waterfall plot, we can see broad activity. What I think is most impressive is the durability. The median duration of response was almost a year and a half with this agent, for some patients receiving treatment for much longer. There are toxicities though, and because this is a kinase inhibitor blocking EGFR, its toxicities are largely related to wild type EGFR signaling. And so diarrhea in 91% of patients, about 21% were grade three. So this is a toxicity we have to watch for. We have to expect, anticipate, and educate our patients on how to manage as it emerges. Rash was seen in about 45% of patients. You can also see QT prolongation, but overall this is an active drug with a lot of activity in this setting.
Amivantamab is given intravenously. Um, it is a MET EGFR bispecific antibody, and the response rate 40%, as you see from this waterfall plot, um, broad activity, and it really didn't matter where the EGFR mutation was seen. It can occur in different areas of exon 20, and this was active across different ones, median duration of response just under a year. A uh, side effect that we see a lot with amivantamab are infusion reactions, but do not be alarmed. Uh, these occur pretty routinely in most patients with the first dose, but in anticipation of that, the first dose is split in half into day one and day two. And on day one, you receive part of the, the dose. Uh, if there are infusion reactions, we simply just stop the treatment, go home, come back tomorrow, and we don't expect to see it again. It's usually just that first time. It's not an anaphylactic allergic reaction. Generally, it doesn't occur with rechallenge. It's just that first dose where we see that. There are toxicities. We don't really see a lot of diarrhea with amivantamab, but you can see rash with amivantamab and perinicchia. Um, you can see edema, but to a lesser extent than the Medexon 14 skip mutation drugs. When we look at EGFR on 20, as you mentioned, it is important to find these. We have two drugs approved. There are more coming. A lot of other agents showing activity in this space. This is an area of very active drug development. I know a lot of this being done at your institution, ABI. Yes, that's correct. And similar to uh, EGFR exon 20 insertions, we also have HER2 exon 20 insertions. And HER2 is unique in that it's not just about mutations. We have amplification. At one point, we were looking at overexpression. But I, I, I make this point to highlight that recently we've had a targeted therapy or a selective therapy approved for HER2, and it's specific for HER2 mutations. And so this is uh, trastuzumab deruxtecan, which we'll talk about a little bit later, but it's for HER2 mutant non-small cell lung cancer. And so that's a key distinction. So it's not just about the target, but also what particular alteration is involved, is involving the target when we're thinking about these therapies. And just to really illustrate here that these are really, you know, quite diverse. The, the number of different kind of distinct alterations or distinct mutations that have been uh, described for uh, HER2 exon 20 insertions. So the details matter and our job has become so much more complex. It's, you know, long gone are the days of CarboPack for everyone. There are different regimens, different targeted agents, um, different targets to know about. So we need to know the details of testing. All of those details are very important. When we find a mutation like KRAS, we can't say KRAS positive. That's not enough information. We need the specific KRAS mutation that's there. KRAS, as we know, is very commonly mutated in non-small cell lung cancer, um, especially in the US. KRAS G12C is specifically the most common mutation, and by itself it accounts for um, 44% of all KRAS mutations, but 13% of all lung adenocarcinoma overall. So it is uh, a common driver by itself, but KRAS G12C is very different from KRAS G12D, and that one letter makes all the difference in the world, and so these are not interchangeable, different biologies, and now different drugs. We now have an agent FDA approved for KRAS G12C non-small cell lung cancer, and that's Sotiracib, formerly AMG510. This oral, kind of, this oral inhibitor um, was shown to be broadly active in the CodeBreak 100 trial, which is a phase two study. We saw the response rate was 37%. This is in pre-treated patients who've already had chemotherapy, immunotherapy, uh, most patients with both disease control rate over 80%. And so it is a very active agent in this setting. Um, as we see the overall survival here at 960 milligrams a day, just over a year. This is in the previously treated setting. There are toxicities, namely diarrhea, 
seen about a third of patients, but mostly grade one, grade two. We can see elevation of transaminases, again, typically lower grade. Overall, though, it's a well-tolerated drug, especially when the alternative is docetaxel-based chemotherapy with its cytopenias, alopecia, its infusions every three weeks. This was a very appealing alternative um, to docetaxel. Um, in a randomized study, uh, there was an improvement in progression-free survival with sotorasib versus docetaxel. There was no difference in median overall survival, uh, but it's largely due to crossover and underpowering of the study. This is a drug that is FDA approved for KRAS G12C, non-small cell lung cancer, and it's not the only drug approved now. That's correct. So recently we've had the approval of Adagrasib, and that's based on the Crystal 1 study. And so uh, the way I would think about these two drugs, again, we don't have head-to-head -head comparisons. You mentioned a head-to-head -head comparison with docetaxel, but we don't have any studies comparing Adagrasib and Sotorasib. But what we do know from the Phase 1-2 study of Adagrasib is that the response rate or the efficacy is comparable. So the response rate is about 43%, uh, the median PFS, again, about six months, and median overall survival about a year or a little over a year. The, the key thing, though, uh, key distinctions between uh, what was highlighted in the publication for this drug and the Sotorasib publication is that this one, we really got a lot of data on the intracranial efficacy. So among 33 patients in the study who had brain metastases, the intracranial response rate was about 33%. So I think it's a, a reasonable uh, drug in that setting. And I think another thing is that we always have to not only are our drugs efficacious, but are they tolerable? And so here, uh, while the rate of dose discontinuation is very comparable to sotorasib, dose reductions, over, uh, over half of patients required some sort of dose reduction. So it's the same range of toxicities, mainly gastrointestinal, but the rates of them are, are a bit higher than we saw with sotorasib. And so two, great to have two drugs in this space. And again, we don't have any data comparing them head to head. And so just to summarize this initial section, it is very important to have biomarker testing prior to therapy just to optimize care for our patients with non-small cell lung cancer. And so what is biomarker testing? It includes assessing for pdl one tumor expression as well as looking at various genomic alterations. We've mentioned that these can be mutations. We look at amplification and we also look at fusions. And so these guidelines, uh, these, these molecular markers or biomarkers really guide initial therapy in advanced non-squamous non-small cell lung cancer and as we'll discuss a little bit later, they actually apply to the earlier disease set setting as well. The timing, the type and timing of testing matters. So D DNA versus RNA testing is important as we talked about, particularly in the context of fusions. And it's also important that we get it right, right? We have to know what we're looking for. And we have to know, you know, by, to say biomarker positive is not enough anymore as we learned with the KRAS example and the EGFR examples. And more to come, biomarker testing is absolutely critical for non-small cell lung cancer. It is hard, but it is important that we learn the details of proper biomarker testing. It's really only the first step though. So once we have our biomarker, how do we choose our initial treatment? You know, first uh, the question is, are we giving chemotherapy versus targeted therapy? And an important point here is if we're waiting for testing, Maybe someone had to go back and get another biopsy for tissue testing. We're waiting for details. There are some problems. There are delays. And someone needs therapy now. Our immediate treatment can be chemotherapy because we can always switch from chemotherapy to targeted therapy. It should not be immunotherapy unless we know that the patient does not have a driver because it's much harder to switch from immunotherapy to targeted therapy. And we don't want to put ourselves or our patients in that situation. Um, if we're choosing targeted therapy... We have multiple drugs approved for almost all of these targets. So how do we choose among them? Is one better than the other? What does better mean? 
Uh, we certainly think of efficacy, response rate, PFS, overall survival. Is overall survival the only metric that matters? We think not. We have to consider safety. Um, grade three, severe, dangerous toxicity, sure. But also chronic low-grade toxicity. If a pill is going to be expected to work on the, the scale of, of many years, uh, living with these lower-grade toxicities can really be a big impact uh, on quality of life. And there are also non-clinical considerations. Access, formularies, lifestyle, such as intravenous versus oral administration, and of course, cost. I think this applies particularly well to ALK fusion-positive lung cancer. It's an important subset. This wasn't the first biomarker that we saw, uh, but maybe the one where we have the most highly effective options. Maybe I know you've done a lot of work in this space. Why don't you tell us a little bit about ALK fusion-positive non-small cell lung cancer? Yeah, so ALK is a space where we have many or multiple highly efficacious therapies. So the story began with crizotinib, as you see here, but we've since moved on from crizotinib. We have multiple next-generation inhibitors, including electinib, brigatinib, seritinib. We've seen data for insartinib, but it's not actually approved in the United States, and then morlatinib. All of these drugs, as we'll go over in the next few slides, have demonstrated kind of considerable efficacy. And so the first one we'll look at is the ALEX trial. So this compared head-to-head electinib to crizotinib and really demonstrated superior efficacy, including a, a tripling of the median progression-free survival. And importantly, there was kind of very impressive intracranial response. We see data here for like the cumulative progression, incidence of CNS progression. And we see that it is much lower with electinib at one year uh, when we're predicting it, and particularly among patients who don't have baseline brain metastases. So we think of drugs like electinib and the other drugs that we'll be discussing as protective against developing intracranial metastases. So in addition to electinib, we've also seen data from brigatinib. And so this is the ULTA-1L trial, similar design to the, elect the ALEC study that we discussed, where it's a head-to-head -head comparison of brigatinib to crizotinib. Here, the median progression-free survival with crizotinib was comparable to what we've seen across studies at a little under a year, and brigatinib was about 24 months. Again, this is a drug that works very well in the CNS. One, one distinction between this drug and the prior drug that I discussed is that we have to keep a close eye for uh, early onset pulmonary toxicity with this drug. Another therapy that we've seen, and I think that has garnered a lot of excitement, to be honest, right? It, this is the third generation inhibitor, lorlatinib. Lorlatinib is distinct from electinib and brigatinib in that it was actually designed to overcome mutations that make uh, electinib and brigatinib no longer effective or efficacious. And so this is the CROWN study, and this is a third generation EGFR-targeted uh, therapy compared to crizotinib. And here we haven't yet reached our median PFS, but what is, is striking is that the hazard ratio is kind of clustering in the 1.2, so less than 0.3. For context, it's a little bit closer to 0.5 when we think about uh, drugs like electinib and brigatinib. One key uh, statistics or one key time point to look at is that when we looked at an up, when we saw the most recent update of this data, when we look at three years, we see that over 60% of patients are alive and have not had a progression event. When we think about, again, we don't have head-to-head -head comparisons, but when we think about electinib and brigatinib, that number is a little bit closer to 40 to 45%. And so this is a very, very uh, effective drug, very, very active drug, and it also has great CNS activity. We've seen time-to-CNS progression data with this drug as well. And so the question kind of arises, when you have all these drugs that are so active, both systemically and intracranially, sometimes we have to think about the toxicity profile, right? And so lorlatinib has generated a lot of discussion in that it has a bit of a unique toxicity profile, including neurocognitive uh, CNS events or neurocognitive adverse events that people might be living with for many years. 
And so I want to kind of turn the question to you, Stephen. At my institution, we're, we're always having internal debates about, do we start with electinib? Do we start with lorlatinib? Do we start with brigatinib? And I have to say that people are getting increasingly swayed toward lorlatinib based on this kind of recent updated data. Is that your practice? Or are you still sticking with earlier generations for now? We're still sticking with the earlier generations at our institution, but um, it is a debate and something that we're, we're discussing pretty openly. Um, it's an embarrassment of riches, right? We have wonderful drugs that, uh, you know, our median PFS is going to be many years for all of them. I think there's no question, based on these crown data that Ben Salman presented, that lorlatinib is the most potent and will have the longest PFS, and it's marching out probably close to five years. That's extremely impressive. Um, the only concern really is that toxicity. And some of the toxicities, the um, waking for some people, the hyperlipidemia, for example, are things that we can, we can become comfortable with, we can manage. It really is that neurocognitive toxicity that has everyone talking. Um, some people don't have it, in which case lorlatinib really clearly should be the preferred drug. While some people can have pretty notable neurocognitive deficits or, or changes, lapses in memory, changes in personality, um, really changing in some ways who they are. And there are people that are really a little bit worried about that toxicity. I've seen some bad cases uh, at our institution. Right now, we still favor, for the most part, starting with lorlatinib, or starting with electinib, uh, and increasingly with brigatinib. And with brigatinib, you mentioned the early onset pulmonary events, but with using the 90 milligram to 180 milligram lead-in, um, and especially in the frontline setting, those are pretty rare. Brigatinib has the advantage of just being one pill, uh, which is a lot easier to remember to take uh, rather than multiple pills twice daily. Uh, but I think electinib and brigatinib really are quite equivalent, very similar, uh, both very good options. Lorlatinib, probably a better PFS, uh, but I think it comes with the cost of toxicity. I'm hoping that at some point we'll be able to, to clarify a little more who's getting that response from lorlatinib that would not get the same response from electinib and brigatinib. Is it patients with certain fusion variants? work that's come out of your institution um, looking at different variants of the AML4 alk fusion? Is it commutations like P53? Um, but I think that, you know, fortunately we have a lot of good options uh, in this space. No, I agree. I think it's like a, a perfect example of precision medicine, right? And continuing to iterate and kind of uh, up the ante in terms of kind of targeting and kind of overcoming resistance. So great example. Yeah, we're seeing similar things in the ROS1 space, right? So ROS1, a little bit less common, uh, a fusion that we know to test for. We can use FISH historically, but um, now increasingly using NGS. And we have two FDA drugs approved in ROS1 fusion, non-small cell lung cancer. The first was crizotinib, our, our very versatile uh, first-generation agent, and then entrectinib, more recently approved. Both are very active ROS1 inhibitors, crizotinib with a response rate of about 66%, and trectinib about 74%. Median progression-free survival, pretty similar between the two, somewhere around 16 to 18 months. The two drugs do have slightly different toxicity profiles, though. Crizotinib, as we know, is a multi-kinase inhibitor, and so it targets ALK, ROS, and MET, and so you might expect to see a little bit more edema. You might expect to see a little more GI toxicity. And trectinib, famously targets ROS1 and NTREC, where it's also approved. And targeting NTREC has its own consequences, affecting proprioception, dizziness, appetite, and so forth. Um, I think between the two, they're, they're similar in that I would not necessarily expect one to overcome resistance to another. And so if someone had true um, progression on crizotinib, I don't know that entrectinib would really be a good option or vice versa. I think entrectinib does have a slight advantage in terms of CNS, so someone with CNS involvement, perhaps entrectinib may be a more potent option, or in CNS protection, 
Right now, my practice is still with entrectinib, but I think both are good options. Looking ahead to the future, there's a drug being developed called repotrectinib, or TPX005. Um, this drug had even higher response rates, around 79% in one report, um, and they seem to be very durable. This drug not yet FDA approved, but showing a lot of potency. This really is the era of medicinal chemistry where we are rationally designing drugs. We're not just stumbling upon them in the wild. We are intentionally creating these molecules to serve their purpose. And I think repetrectinib is a great example of that. Um, unfortunately, even though the response rates are very high with drugs like repetrectinib and trectinib, um, they, they don't last forever. They can be quite durable, but we eventually do expect resistance. And this is one of our biggest challenges, uh, identifying and overcoming resistance to targeted therapy. So for this next principle, ABI, uh, resistance means a lot of different things, right? It does. And I think that we've, we've just developed frameworks to help us think about it, right? And we tend to think of things that are target dependent versus target independent. And so when we say target dependent, these are mutations in the drug target, like an ALK point mutation, for example. Sometimes the, the for lack of a better way, the tumor, better way to phrase this, the tumor can phone a friend, right? Bypass signaling. They, an example of this, as we'll discuss, is MET amplification. And sometimes it can be that the tumor changes shape completely. So we've seen uh, histologic switches as a, a manifestation of resistance. And these are important to try to characterize because it influences what we do next, how we can try to overcome resistance. And so one, uh, one other thing that, it, that is important to point out is that the, the manifestations or the kind of the makeup of resistance is driven by the therapy. And one, one key example of that is the EGFR experience. And so we used to start with first uh, generation EGFR inhibitors. And what we'd find is that 50% of patients or more would have T790M, which actually influenced or informed the development of osimertinib. Now that we've moved towards using osimertinib in the first line setting, we've seen a variation in the resistance profile, right? So we're not seeing kind of a predominance of one specific on-target mutation. So we are seeing target-dependent mutations as seen here, but we're also seeing off-target mutations, including uh, amplifications, as we've talked about, point mutations, fusions. We see histologic switches. It's not just a small cell lung cancer anymore. We've, we've seen recent experience from the Memorial Sloan Kettering Group showing that squamous cell transformations are something that we see as well. And so it does really mean that when we're developing next-line therapy, it's not going to be one-size-fits-all. And that has really informed or kind of influenced the design of these next-line therapeutic strategies. Yeah, I think um, this really is the art of what we do. Um, it's not use a drug, uh, it stops working, switch to another. There's a lot of gray, there are a lot of individualization uh, of resistance. And when we think of, of a targeted agent, if it's no longer working, um, we need a little more detail than that. Is it that we see a single site we know that resistance can be polyclonal, that um, different sites will evolve at different rates. And so if someone was doing very well with osimertinib and had a single spot um, where we saw that clone was progressing, do we change our treatment entirely or do we cut that area out? Do we radiate that area? Do we pursue local therapy for single sites of, of progression? If we have two different areas, are they different mechanisms? which happens very frequently. And we worry about histologic transformation because the only way to see that, at least right now, is with biopsy, with a tissue biopsy, not a liquid biopsy, which is invasive and sometimes simply not feasible. When we do these tests and we do next-gen sequencing, we find MET amplification, we find a red fusion, we find something targetable, um, do we then switch our drugs? Do we add a second drug? Or do we ignore that altogether and focus on something different? If we don't find something at all, are there new treatments that work agnostic 
or are we better off just moving right to chemotherapy and trying to reset things? And I think this is where a lot of the research ongoing now is, we're increasingly knowing that we can target these, right? especially fusions. When we see the emergence of a RET, ALK, other fusions, we can add another TKI and see activity. There have been multiple reports showing responses and showing general safety. There have been large studies though, and we still don't know if that's better than just switching to chemotherapy. What we don't know is how long these will work. And there are some ongoing reports that will really tell us uh, how effective these strategies are. They can be expensive because now we're talking about two targeted agents, but the responses we've seen uh, have been quite impressive. We can also see secondary resistance mutations to newer drugs. You mentioned T790M uh, as resistance to first and second generation EGFR kinase inhibitors. The equivalent for osimertinib would be C797S. Um, C797S really conferring resistance to osimertinib, and this is a setting where really first-generation TKIs like jafinib and erlotinib may be active there, and there are many reports of using a combination of a first-gen and a third-generation TKI to really overcome C797S while preventing T790M. Fortunately, there are also fourth-generation EGFR TKIs, uh, including ones that have activity against C797S that are entering the clinic. Um, to understand the mechanisms of resistance, we would need to biopsy. And it's easy enough for, for you and I to say to do that. What it turns out is it's kind of hard to do in practice. And I just want to openly acknowledge that it's not always possible to get a biopsy. The ELEO study uh, presented by uh, our colleague, Dr. Uh, Zosia Piotrowska at ESMO 2022 was really a study just looking at biopsy. These were patients with EGFR mutant lung cancer that had NGS, started osimertinib, and then at progression, had another uh, biopsy for NGS. And we're looking at paired biopsies. And it was, it was quite interesting. We definitely saw things that we would expect to see in terms of resistance, things that we knew. Med amplification, EGFR C797S. We saw some unexpected ones like ALK fusions, like NKX2 amplification. Um, but to me, I think one of the more important pieces of information that come out here was that biopsy was really hard to do. That in this study, where the, the whole purpose of this trial was to do biopsy, where you had patients motivated, amenable to biopsy, you had the perfect conditions for paired biopsies, less than 40% of people actually had paired biopsies. So while we say we want to biopsy to find these alterations, we also want to acknowledge that that can be sometimes very difficult to do, and sometimes we do have to rely on things like liquid. No, I, I completely agree. And I, I think one thing, too, that you, you highlighted earlier on is that we have case reports, right, where we or kind of end of one experiences summarizing that the, that doing a co combination approach can be quite active if we find like an ALK rearrangement or a RET rearrangement. But what we also are facing is a dearth of knowledge about how long these therapies are going to be effective. Are they the best strategy? Are they better than kind of doing chemotherapy? And so I think we really need to also participate in these prospective studies like Orchard here. So this is a biomarker-directed uh, platform study where depending on what you find at resistance to osomertinib, patients are assigned to different treatment arms. Uh, wanted to spend a few moments talking about med amplification specifically. And so this is a uh, resistance alteration that has been described several years ago, actually, in the context of first-generation EGFR inhibitors, something we're seeing in osomertinib as well. So in the ELIA study, is about 15%. And um, there's been a lot of interest because we have MET-targeted therapies and EGFR-targeted therapies about combining them to see if we can overcome MET-driven resistance. So as part of this ORCHARD study, there's an arm for patients who had MET alterations. And in this, the objective response rate of combining osimertinib and savolitinib, which is a uh, MET TKI, was about 41%. Uh, this resonates very well with other studies that have looked at this, a similar approach. 
one of which is the Savannah study, which is OC plus SAVO, where savolitinib and EGF4 mutant met amplified non-small cell lung cancer after osimertinib. This is the study design here. And just to really focus on the data, I think one thing that we're still trying to figure out is like, who are the patients who benefit most from EGFR plus MET-based combinations? Is it having a high expression of MET? Is it having many, many copies of the MET gene? And so, and what is, what is the definition of many copies of the MET gene? And so a lot of studies have built in these analyses where they have different populations of patients that are kind of stratified according to how much expression, how many gene copies, and they, they assess the response, the sensitivity to the combination based on that. And I think one pattern that we're seeing across studies is that if you have a whole lot of MET, be it expression, be it more copies, that you're more likely to have a, a higher response rate. But again, I think that the efficacy is encouraging. It ranges from about 30 to 50% uh, for the objective response rate across these studies. And that is just illustrated here as well. So this is the highest number of MET copies as well as the greatest level of MET expression. So we've talked so far about um, OC plus savolitinib, but we also have experience with OC plus a different drug, tapotinib, which is a different MET uh, TKI. And here we see similar findings where when you really select for having high MET gene copy number, uh, you can enrich for a sensitivity or benefit from the drug. In this study that we saw presented at ESMO this year, the objective response rate was around 54%, uh, depending on which cohort you're looking at. And so I think this is a strategy that I I'm excited about moving forward, actually. And the hope is that to apply similar principles to other alterations that we see at resistance to osimertinib. And of course, the best way to do that is through a prospective study. There's a, another combination I think has a lot of promise is the combination of amivantamab and lazertinib. Amivantamab, as we talked about, is a bispecific antibody that targets EGFR and MET. Um, it's approved by the FDA for EGFR exon 20 non-small cell lung cancer, but it's very active for uh, sensitizing EGFR mutations like DEL19 and LA58R combination of amivantamab plus lazertinib, which is a third-generation EGFR-TKI, very similar to osimertinib, um, showed a lot of activity for patients that had progressed on osimertinib. In these early data, what we saw was particularly if resistance was mediated by EGFR or MET, whether it was amplification of MET, amplification of EGFR, um, if EGFR and MET were implicated in resistance, the combination of amivantamab and lazertinib had a response rate of 47%. Uh, that's quite high after osimertinib, a space where we really need options that are better than chemotherapy. There was an update of the Chrysalis 2 trial, which looked at the combination of amimantamab and lazertinib in EGFR mutant lung cancer. This was after osimertinib and after chemotherapy. And what we saw was, I think, quite impressive response rates. Importantly, we saw responses really in very heavily pretreated populations. And as we move this combination into the earlier setting, we expect that to be uh, potentially even more active. Yeah, and, and, and thinking about approaching or overcoming re resistance in other contexts, so this is ROS1 rearranged non-small cell lung cancer. We talked previously about the therapies we have available for the first-line setting, but we're also learning about resistance to ROS-targeted therapies like crizotinib and entrectinib. And so there are next-generation ROS1 inhibitors being developed for this setting. One we've heard about, lorlatinib, in the context of ALK-positive lung cancer. So lorlatinib has activity in ALK and ROS1. Um, when given to patients who had progressed on ROS1 TKI, such as crizotinib, the objective response rate is about 35%, median PFS around nine months. I think one key thing we have to consider when we're thinking about resist overcoming resistance to ROS1-targeted therapies is this particular mutation called G2032R. So it's a solvent front mutation. It, we think of it as a bad actor. And so all next generation ROS1 uh, TKIs are trying to overcome that mutation. 
And so it's a bit humbling that lorlatinib in a small cohort of patients, so six patients, didn't really have activity against this mutation. Other next-generation uh, ROS1 inhibitors, such as reputrectinib, we've heard about the Trident study, as well as telrotrectinib, have demonstrated more encouraging activity against G20, uh, G2032R. And so about 50 to 80% response rates, but, but again, small numbers of patients. And so we're still really searching for what's going to be our next-line therapy after crizotinib and insartinib and uh, intractinib in the first-line setting. And of course, as illustrated in this table, there's differences in terms of the toxicity profile for these drugs. And I think as we learned in the ALK space, that probably is going to influence what we select next if we're fortunate enough to have multiple therapies approved for this indication. And one other drug that it's worth pointing out that it's to keep an eye on, uh, Stephen already mentioned this, but this is NVL520. So this is another uh, next generation ROS1 inhibitor. Um, we've seen kind of early, very, very early data for this drug where the response rate was about 48% in pretreated patients. And we also saw great activity, pretty comparable to what we saw with the reputrectinib and talrotrectinib against G2032R. And we've also seen that this drug has some early uh, intracranial activity. And the key thing with this drug is that based on the design of the drug, it was developed to perhaps enhance the tolerability, so less of the dizziness we see with other drugs. And so we'll this is something to keep an eye on. You know, another important target we talk about is NTRAC. And as we know, we have two FDA-approved kinase inhibitors that are uh, active for NTRAC 1, 2, or 3 fusions. And that is across tumors, really approved in a tumor agnostic manner. And while the responses can be dramatic, um, it can be very durable, they don't last forever. And we do expect resistance to TRAC inhibitors like larotrectinib and entrectinib. Uh, the next generation of TRAC TKIs is in development, and we've mentioned repotrectinib, a very versatile drug. While it's very active in ROS1 frontline, ROS1 pretreated, it's also very active in NTRAC, both in the frontline setting and overcoming resistance. Uh, other drugs in the development would be selitrectinib and talotrectinib, all with activity. And when we think of how resistance develops with a lot of these kinase inhibitors, um, with entrectinib and crizotinib and larotrectinib, lorlatinib, Really, those types of kinase inhibitors are susceptible to solvent front mutations. But the next generation of drugs, these sort of rationally designed uh, molecules, uh, are the type 1 macrocyclic, uh, microcyclic tyrosine kinase inhibitors, which are really insusceptible to the solvent front mutations. And I think two of the best examples are selitrectinib and repotrectinib. Repotrectinib really studied in the Trident 1 study across various different scenarios involving ROS1 and NTRAC, but it does have activity against very important solvent front mutations, again, due to its macrocyclic design. In the, in the activity of uh, NTRAC TKI pretreated non-small cell lung cancer, uh, while the sample size overall was relatively modest, we saw responses of 50% disease control rates that were even higher um, and fairly impressive durations of response. So while our NTRAC inhibitors work very well, we do expect resistance. Newer drugs are needed, and Repotrectinib really looking to fill that space with impressive activity in the setting after um, previous NTRAC TKIs. Selitrectinib or LOXO195 also being studied in the dose one, uh, a phase one dose escalation and a phase two expansion for NTRAC non-small cell lung cancer, also showing very impressive activity in that setting. Uh, we've already established the dose, and stay tuned. These drugs are likely to make a big impact here. 
Yeah, so very, very important. The kind of common threads throughout all of the different targets that we talked about is just the importance of doing biomarker profiling to characterize resistance, whether it's a tissue biopsy or a liquid biopsy. But we've also talked about how challenging it can be to sometimes do that. There are multiple next-generation TKIs that we've talked about that are emerging, a lot of which are focused on solvent front mutations. And I think that we shouldn't be shy that in some instances, the best option may be chemotherapy. And so, Stephen, to turn to ask you a question. So, I often find myself uh, wanting to continue the TKI beyond progression and just add something on. Is that something you do in your practice? Is that context specific? Uh, I think it's a, a great question, Ibian. I think it depends a little bit on the circumstance. Um, we know that continuing a first-generation EGFR inhibitor with chemotherapy was not beneficial. In fact, maybe even detrimental. And so, that was the impressed study where gefitinib plus chemotherapy was inferior, actually, to chemotherapy alone after progression on gefitinib. Um, I don't think that's going to hold true with the next generation of agents. And with osimertinib, uh, I think that because it is a better tolerated drug and because it provides CNS benefit, I think that is a drug that I, I do like to continue when I can. There can be a little increase in toxicity, for sure. And some of the overlapping toxicities, like the myelosuppression, uh, are things that need to be watched. But I think overall, that combination is well-tolerated I continue osimertinib to help control brain metastases if they were present and help prevent brain metastases if they weren't. Uh, that'll be asked formally in the COMPEL trial, uh, but I do think that is something that makes sense to me and I try to do. Uh, what, what's your practice in that setting, Ben? Yeah, that largely reflects my practice as well. I think osimertinib is so good in the brain that we, we try to continue it unless someone is progressing kind of multi-site progression or we're worried about tolerability and they've had a tough time tolerating osimertinib, I tend to want to continue it as well. Yeah, different case for something like MedX14, ROS1, where the TKI is, well, very effective, might have a little bit more toxicity. It might be a little tougher to combine. So in those settings, I'm less likely to do so, but for EGFR, for ALK, for RET, very often, um, I will combine them, but we do have to, to take care to make sure uh, toxicities don't emerge. Now, we've been talking up to now about the advanced setting and biomarker testing, using that as well as the clinical context to guide therapy is really our standard. What's changed in recent years has been a shift, a shift to applying these same paradigms, the same power of these paradigms to the earlier stage setting. In the earlier stage, we know that we can potentially cure uh, patients with lung cancer, but even in stage one, two, um, certainly in stage three, while cure is our goal, it's not always our expectation, and the rates of relapse are very high, especially for those with driver alterations. Now, we've had some, I think, practice-changing data in this early-stage setting. Yeah, and a lot of that, it really begins with Adora. A lot of internet d debate around Adora, right, and endpoints and everything, but just for the sake of time, we'll just discuss the data that we have at hand. And so this is a study for patients with EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer and the co most common EGFR mutations. So we're not talking about exon 20 insertions here. It randomized patients with resected uh, EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer to receive osimertinib or placebo. Uh, the treatment duration was three years and the primary endpoint was disease-free survival. So we saw the early data, but we've actually recently seen the most updated data for this study. And it's presented here. And, and so what we see is that this, this drug does it it, without a doubt, extend the disease-free survival. Um, more recently, we've seen that up to about four years. And what we see is that when we initially saw the data about 
one year, we saw 90% of patients were free from progression or death who had osimertinib compared to about 44 to 45% of patients. Those curves are coming a little bit closer together now. And I think we have to remind ourselves that patients were on osimertinib for three years. And so that has really raised the question of, you know, are we suppressing disease or are we curing disease? But again, I, I think that this is a, in my personal practice, I think it's a strong recommendation if we can suppress disease for many, many years. I think that that, mean, that is meaningful to patients as well. One thing that we've highlighted uh, so far has also been that uh, osimertinib's uh, intracranial activity. So we'll discuss that in the next slide, but this is just showing as anticipated, the more aggressive diseases, the more benefit patients get from osimertinib versus placebo. And some, some of those hazard ratio numbers were most impressive in a stage three population compared to a stage one B population. We see similar trends with chemotherapy and other therapies in this setting. And so uh, the thing that I was uh, mentioning earlier is that osimertinib, the reason we talked about continuing it beyond progression is really for its intracranial uh, activity. And then we see here in the ADORA study that it, it's protective against developing CNS, the C, uh, intracranial progression. And so in this data set, about a six versus 11% of patients, so the placebo versus the osimertinib arm had the CNS as a site of progression. And if we look at the four year uh, landmark, we see about 90% of patients do do not have a CNS site of progression compared to about 75% of patients in the placebo arm. And so this is another reason that people uh, kind of strong, people are advocating or supporting using osomertinib in this setting. I think we'll see data kind of applying osomertinib as Stephen will talk about to other practice settings as well. And I think there's always gonna be the kind of ongoing debate about how, how long is enough for treating patients with osomertinib in the adjuvant setting. And one other thing to point out, we talked about continuing osimertinib beyond progression just because it's tolerable. And I think that we've seen that in the adjuvant setting as well. But I think we have to remind ourselves that when your cancer has been completely resected, what is tolerable, the definition of what is tolerable might change. And so this is an area we should keep an eye on, especially if we're talking about continuing treatment for three years or perhaps even more. One key thing is that the rate of interstitial lung disease is low with this drug in the adjuvant setting. Yeah, tolerability is very important in this setting, especially as you mentioned, Ibi, because patients, you know, may be cured already. They're asymptomatic, um, and you can't make an asymptomatic person feel better. You can only make them feel worse. Um, but as you mentioned, we're exploring osimertinib in different settings, and the NeoAdora trial is looking at the neoadjuvant approach, where we would look at osimertinib either alone or with chemotherapy compared to chemotherapy for patients with resectable lung cancer. Now to do this, we would need to know the EGFR status before surgery. And so doing these tests on small biopsy specimens, again, becomes important and the quick turnaround is very relevant. But we'll see if this improves outcomes further. Maybe it could even facilitate surgeries. And, and I wonder if it could uh, convert an unresectable to resectable. Now that's not being asked in this question, but the future is very bright with a lot of possibilities. Adora 2 is a trial looking to apply osimertinib in the adjuvant setting um, for stage 1A non-small cell lung cancer, where chemotherapy doesn't really play a role, but where the relapse rates are still unacceptably high, um, especially in 1A3, where the five-year survival rates are only about 80%. And we also have multiple other targets to consider in this space. There are adjuvant ALK studies, adjuvant RET studies. There are multiple neoadjuvant trials and an umbrella study like LCMC4, where we're looking at EGFR, ALK, ROS1, MET, many other targets in this resectable non-small cell lung cancer setting. We've talked mostly about TKIs, and that's really where targeted therapy began, where precision oncology emerged with the IPASS study. Um, but there are many non-TKI targeted therapy options in non-small cell lung cancer. And I think this is probably 
maybe even one of the more exciting spaces of recent years, right? It is. Yeah, and so when we've talked about targeted therapy so far, we're for the most part we're talking about oral tyrosine kinase inhibitors. We've we have talked about uh, spoken about amivantamab, which is a little bit different. And so to continue that conversation here, when we're talking about non-TKI targeted therapy options, we're talking about antibodies, right? Monoclonal antibodies, bispecific antibodies, and even very exciting, right? Antibody drug conjugates, which have really just marched onto the scene, and then also combinations with TKIs. And so to begin our discussion, we're going to talk about a rare target, uh, but a very relevant target. So these are NRG1 fusions. NRG1 fusions are a little bit different in that it's it's a ligand, right? And so NRG, it normally, uh, so NRG1 fusions are rare. So less than 0.5% of non-tumult cell lung cancer has these. Um, they tend to associate with mucinous adenocarcinoma, but we can also see it across a variety of histologies. We can see it in never smokers and also in patients who have smoked as well. And so it's important to test. This is one case where the RNA-based testing is quite important, as, as Stephen mentioned. And so th there's a unique relationship between NRG1 fusions and HER3. So they bind to HER3, which binds to HER2 to lead to activation. And so a lot of our therapies you might find are actually targeting HER3 or HER2. And so one therapy that we've used so far is repurposing uh, a fatinib. The fatinib, you may recall, is a second-generation EGFR-TKI, but it's also a pan kind of HER family inhibitor. And so we've seen case reports of uh, using a fatinib in the context of NRG1 fusion non-tumosal lung cancer, and there is a more kind of prospective way of looking at this. Uh, this is the TAPR study, so it's a non-randomized single-group assignment study looking at more, uh, more systematically at the efficacy of the fatinib in this patient population. But we've also seen other approaches beyond the TKI. And so, uh, Stephen, do you want to discuss some of those? Yeah, I think these ones are, are, are very promising. We have seen some antibody approaches. And it's important to find these fusions when they're present. We know that NRG1 fusion-positive non-small cell lung cancer, for example, responds very poorly to standard treatment with very bad outcomes to chemotherapy or chemoimmunotherapy. Um, these often have a mucinous pattern, so patients are very short of breath, often very ill, will have... Uh, almost pneumonitis-like patterns on their scans, but it's not pneumonitis. It really is the pattern of growth of this disease. And we've seen very impressive results with some of these prospective studies. And while we don't have prospective data yet for a fatinib, serabantamep, which is a HER3 monoclonal antibody, does show activity. We saw in the Creststone study, which is a, a prospective phase two study, the response rate about 33% overall. Um, in lung cancer specifically, 36%. NRG1 fusions, as we mentioned, uh, do occur in lung cancer. They occur in many other cancers as well. KRAS, wild-type pancreatic cancer, where the outcomes are quite good with some of these agents. We see this in cholangiocarcinoma, um, uh, colorectal cancer. Really, it is seen across tumor types. But serabantamab, the HER3 antibody, showing impressive activity. Uh, unfortunately, this drug is no longer being developed in this space, but we do have xenocatuzumab, a drug that does have FDA breakthrough designation. This is a bispecific, targeting HER2 and HER3, and in NRG1 fusion-positive non-small cell lung cancer, we saw response rates around 30%. About 76% of patients did have some tumor reduction with quite high response rates in pancreatic cancer. Would this be the first targeted drug we have uh, for pancreatic cancer? That would be quite exciting, and certainly in non-small cell lung cancer, we've seen robust responses with quite impressive durability and safety profiles as well. So NRG1 fusions are rare, but they're important to find because they tell us outcomes of standard treatments are quite poor, and we do have exciting new targeted agents uh, available through ongoing clinical trials. And so let's pivot a little bit to talk about a different type of therapy, and so these are antibody drug conjugates. 
Uh, one of them that we've already referenced is the trastuzumab deruxacan. We'll talk a little bit more about the data supporting that approval soon. Um, but antibody drug conjugates, uh, it's important to talk about the build of these uh, molecules. And so they're a way to selectively deliver chemotherapy into a cancer cell that tends to express an antigen at a higher level than normal cells. And so HER2 might be the antigen for trastuzumab deruxtecan. These, an these uh, antibodies are linked to a cytotoxic drug, which we call a payload, so uh, a chemotherapy basically, via cleavable linker. And it, it's a, a quite an elegant uh, drug design in that the the drug is the cytotoxic drug is not cleaved until it's within the cancer cell itself. And with a lot of these drugs that we're going to be talking about, or these ADCs that we're going to be talking about, they have additional kind of uh, designs that allow them to diffuse into nearby cells. And so that just inc increases the potency of it and kind of the, the ability to, uh, the context of it really, the number of patients who may benefit from the approach. And so we are seeing, as I mentioned, right, the landscape is really being shaken up by antibody drug conjugates. There are many different antigens that these are targeting, and we'll, we'll spend the next few moments uh, discussing a few of them. And so the first one is uh, TDM1, and we talked about this one in HER2 mutated non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, we talked about TDXD, sorry, this was a pre predecessor of TDXD. This is TDM1. It's approved for um, breast cancer, and this was data from Bob Lee and colleagues a couple years back now, demonstrating that in both in HER2 mutant non-small cell lung cancer as well as HER2 amplified non-small cell lung cancer, this was an active drug, response rates around 40%. Um, so an improvement on TDM1 is TDXD that we've talked about. So it's a more potent drug. It has some of these more sophisticated enhancements that allows it to deliver more drug to the, uh, to the cancer cells. And uh, trastuzumab deruxtecan is the name that we're talking about here. And um, Stephen's going to walk us through the design of the Destiny Lung studies. Yeah, Destiny Lung 1 really looked at the efficacy of trastuzumab deruxtecan or TDXD in two different cohorts. HER2 overexpressing non-small cell lung cancer, so using IHC, where it showed a little bit of activity, but HER2 mutant lung cancer, and that's really the true biomarker here, HER2 mutation. And this was studied initially at a dose of 6.4 mg per kg, and what we saw was pretty impressive activity, response rate 55% in heavily pretreated non-small cell lung cancer with a HER2 mutation. These are typically tumors that don't respond well to immunotherapy, we need better agents, TDXD coming in and filling that void, median duration of response was almost 11 months, and that was in patients, um, uh, again, heavily pretreated. Uh, TDXD showing very good efficacy, but the initial study in that Destiny Lung 1 trial, um, the initial study did show some concerning safety signals. The main one we were worried about was interstitial lung disease. Now, it's been described with this drug in other contexts, but we saw in non-small cell lung cancer, the rate of ILD was as high as 25%, which is quite high. Fortunately, this was immediately investigated in the Destiny Lung 2 study and really solidifying the proper dose, maximizing efficacy and safety has been a mandate of the FDA. Destiny Lung 2 was again for HER2 mutant lung cancer, the randomization here, two to one, was just to two different doses of the drug. The 6.4 mg per kg or a lower 5.4 mg per kg every three weeks. And what we saw in Destiny Lung 2 was that lower dose was really in all contexts a better dose. The response rate was higher with the lower dose the safety was better with the lower dose. Using that 5.4 mg per kg dose, we saw the response rate 54%. Um, uh, duration of response uh, overall about uh, six months, what we saw. Um, in the longer follow-up, with a 90-day follow-up, that response rate went up to 58% with a median duration of response of almost nine months. And importantly, the safety 
showed that the um, rate of interstitial lung disease was quite a bit lower at about 6%. And so uh, better safety profile, better efficacy, and that rate of interstitial lung disease was quite a bit lower. Of note, the higher dose, the 6.4, even in that setting, the ILD rate was lower in this updated study, but at that 5.4, which is the proper dose, the rate of interstitial lung disease, uh, less than 6%. And so Stephen, you said it's a proper dose and I, I, the, FDA, the FDA agrees with you. So in uh, August, 2022, um, the FDA approved uh, trastuzumab deroxican at that 5.4 mg per kg dose. And so that's the one that's available currently. And so to pivot a little bit, uh, just to, so kind of round up our dis round on our discussion on uh, destiny lung or the trastuzumab deroxican it's now being explored right so the efficacy was quite good in that uh chemo pretreated population and so now we're asking ourselves the question should we be using it first and so that's the question or that's central uh to the design of destiny lung 04 which is randomizing treatment naive patients with her 2 mutant non-tumoral lung cancer one-to-one -to, -one to tdxd versus standard of care and so stay tuned for that study and so turning towards a different uh, ADC, so patritumab deroxican, but first by way of background, HER3. So this is a, patritumab deroxican is an ADC that targets HER3. HER3 is actually expressed in the majority of lung cancers, and it tends to be overexpressed or in uh, EGFR, in the context of resistance to EGFR-targeted therapies. And we, the reason that people are excited about this drug is that it should be relevant across multiple EGFR-TKI resistance mechanisms. And the fact is that that has proven to be true in some of the early data that we're seeing with this drug. And so this is similar design to, uh, to trastuzumab deroxtecan. Instead, you just kind of slide in uh, drug targeting her, the, uh, uh, antibody targeting HER3. And so this is the Herthina study. And so this is HER3DXD. It's been studied in a variety of contexts. The one that we're going to discuss now is for patients who have pretreated, chemo pretreated EGFR mutant non small cell lung cancer. This drug was given at 5.6 mg per kg. Here uh, we saw this, these data, which are very exciting, right? So a variety of resistance mechanisms. Patients uh, who've already progressed on osimertinib, we see a confirmed objective response rate around 39%, median PFS of 8.2 months. We see activity in the context of EGFR, mutant, EGFR uh, point mutations as well as amplification and off-target events too. So this is an exciting drug. And not only were these responses seen, but they're also quite durable. And we also saw responses in patients who have brain metastases. And, and so this is a drug to keep an eye out for. We talked about the toxicity profile of HER2 uh, or trastuzumab deroxtecan and that we were keeping an eye on interstitial lung disease. And so that's not a major toxicity with this drug. The rate is about 5 to 7% uh, across doses. The th the, uh, and then this is a tolerable drug overall. So low rate of treatment discontinuation. And most of the toxicities are really related to cytopenias. And so we have to keep an eye out for our, our blood counts with this drug. You know, I think another important target is trope two. And again, we're borrowing from the breast cancer world where trope two is an established target. We have approved drugs, but this protein is highly expressed in epithelial tumors. And so we also see it in non-small cell lung cancer, carries a worse prognosis. Importantly, um, pretty highly expressed across most non-small cell lung cancer. And so development of drugs targeting trope two are largely done without using trope two expression as a predictive biomarker. And we do have antibody drug conjugates targeting trope two. One of the furthest along is sasituzumab govotecan. Um, this targets um, uh, trope two. The payload is SN38, which is an active agent in arinotecan. And sasituzumab govotecan is being studied in patients with metastatic lung cancer 
with two large studies that will be very important. One is a phase three trial in the second line, looking at the antibody drug conjugate, sasituzumab, govotecan versus docetaxel. The other is in the frontline setting in combination with immunotherapy, either alone or with platinum-based chemotherapy. And so these will be two studies to watch, trope two, very relevant target for non-small cell lung cancer. Exactly. It's so relevant that there's multiple drugs for it. So the other drug, we've talked about the deruxtecan family of drugs a lot. The other one is DATO-DXD or Datapotamab dxd This is a trope 2 targeting ADC. And we've seen multiple studies now with this drug. And so the first one to talk about is the Tropion uh, Pantumer 01 study. Um, this study explored a variety of doses between kind of four to eight mix per kg, and in the context of patients who had previously been treated with chemotherapy. And so what you'll see with a lot of these TROPE2 trope studies is that they're unselected. They're not like enrolling patients based on having a particular biomarker. And so the, uh, the adverse event profile or the toxicity profile of this drug is also a little bit different in that we don't see a lot of the ILD that we talked about, but what we're seeing is, is uh, GI toxicity um, and uh, alopecia, mucositis, those types of things are the ones that we tend to think about with our TROPE2 targeting drugs. The efficacy has been, I, I think, you know, the efficacy has been encouraging in this context. So around 20, 25 to 30% in this uh, pretreated population of patients. And they've also explored this drug in the context of patients who have other actionable gen, uh, genetic alterations, so our EGFR mutant or ALK positive lung cancer patients. And it's, it's shown some activity in this setting too with an objective response rate around 35%. And so this is an area of active development. There's an ongoing kind of uh, pan-tumor lung 05 study exploring it in this context. And so, you know, this drug, there's a lot of encouraging data for this drug. Uh, overall, the response rate is about 28%. Um, they've already selected the, the dose of the drug moving forward. It's going to be that six uh, per kg dose. You know, we also are trying to move this into the frontline space too, but the response rate you're describing are not quite high enough to justify using this alone. Our biomarker is not quite good enough. So the frontline efforts are really in combination. And so um, the Tropion Lung 2 study presented by our colleague Ben Levy, uh, really looked at the combination of DATO-DXD with pembrolizumab, uh, either alone or in combination with chemotherapy. And uh, we did see encouraging response rates, but there are toxicities. We have to watch the toxicity that sort of has my greatest attention is the stomatitis and mucositis. That can be a difficult one uh, over time, but there was encouraging activity response rate, 62% initially in uh, a larger cohort with chemotherapy, 50%, small numbers, but these are encouraging signals of activity. We do have to watch for toxicity. Uh, but these are combinations to keep an eye on in the future. Yeah, and then we have uh, a different uh, target here. So these are CCAM targeting drugs. Uh, so tusamitamab raptantin is one such drug. Um, again, being explored in the context of patients who've previously received chemotherapy. And so here we're looking for something that works in the setting where we really only have uh, docetaxel and comparable drugs. And so this, again, looking for the right biomarker to uh, dictate efficacy or sensitivity to this uh, therapy. And so, again, in this, in this study that was presented, small numbers of patients, but we're seeing encouraging activity. We, of course, need larger studies to try to validate these findings. Another target that we've seen is TELISO-V. And so this is a uh, ADC targeting CMET. Uh, this has been explored both in kind of EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer, EGFR wild-type non-small cell lung cancer, and squamous non-small cell lung cancer. This is one where I think the biomarker is getting a little bit further along. We find that the efficacy is enhanced in patients who have CMET high, 
so high expression of CMET. And uh, stay tuned for ongoing studies with this particular drug. I think that we've kind of eliminated populations that may not benefit from it. And we're just scratching the surface with this class of molecules. There are some novel antibody drug conjugates. We've talked about cytotoxic moieties, but we don't have to combine a tubulin inhibitor or a toparsomerase inhibitor. It can be a small molecule. It can be an immunomodulatory agent. There's going to be a whole wave of ADCs. And I think a very interesting class of ADCs are these conditionally active biologic ADCs, these CAB ADCs. Um, these are ones that will bind to antigens that are expressed on cancer cells. But uh, when the same antigen is expressed on a normal cell, they won't really activate. And so um, really will bind more actively to cancer cells with these antigens. And so these rational binding strategies are very exciting. I think two that are coming along, one targeting ROR2, another targeting Axel, and that Mechbotamab Vedotin, I'm looking at Axel, has shown some interesting activity. There's an ongoing phase two study um, that has shown encouraging response rates in the PD-1 failure setting where patients have already had immunotherapy and those drugs really stopped working. We don't have a lot in that space. This is really showing promising activity. Um, we've seen some durable responses. We still need to work out exactly how effective it'll be in larger prospective studies, but the early data, both in terms of efficacy and safety and tolerability, I think are very encouraging. So an exciting class of drugs, but I think that if we had to distill this to just a couple key points to BI, one, testing is absolutely critical. Uh, we need to do full comprehensive biomarker testing upfront. Um, resistance, something we uh, expect, we anticipate, and increasingly more strategies to overcome, uh, and then some of the newer drugs, right? Exactly. I think that we're going to be moving towards doing protein expression testing. So I think that's the next frontier for our ADCs. Uh, so uh, an exciting space, targeted therapy, increasingly complex, but with the complexity comes uh, an increasing uh, expectation and better standards. And so this is better for our patients, important to keep uh, uh, this space in mind. And so I, I want to thank everyone for dialing in um, uh, and joining us on this adventure where we look at really optimally integrating biomarker-driven therapy. It no longer is optional. It really is essential to providing the absolute best care for our patients. So uh, thank you for joining. And again, thank you, ABI, for, for uh, all your help guiding us through this very complex space. Stephen, it was a pleasure. So again, we're all in the lung cancer uh, community together, and I think each new target we find is a new opportunity. So hopefully we're looking for all of the targets and we're using the right assays. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash RYC 860. This activity is supported through independent educational grants from AstraZeneca, BioAtla Incorporated, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Daiichi Sankyo Incorporated, Elevation Oncology Incorporated, Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs LLC, and Sanofi.